Hello, my name's James Bagley. And I'm Lucy Chaw. And this is The World We Got This podcast from King's College London. How do we save the internet for civil society? Can we harness the endless drive to mine data for good? And can we support democracy in the age of mass surveillance? These are just some of the questions we explore in today's episode with Professor Ron Debert. As director of the Citizens Lab at the University of Toronto, Ron and his team have been at the very forefront of work to understand the internet's impact on society, helping uncover human rights abuses and pull back the curtain to help us understand what's really going on. As you'll hear, Ron is a passionate advocate for lifting the lid on these new and emerging technologies. His latest work, entitled Reset, Reclaiming the Internet for Civil Society, offers us a glimpse into the systems that shape our lives and critically explores how we can tame these technologies and what better time to reset than now, during a lockdown. So with that in mind, I started by asking how Ron's getting on during the pandemic. Uh, not too bad, actually. Um, you know, the work that I do at, at the Citizen Lab has always been a bit distributed. We have people who work for the Citizen Lab all over the world, so we're used to working remotely. And when the pandemic started, we we all moved to, to home. Uh, this creates some unique security challenges for us, but um, I think we solved them okay. And just trying to make the best of it until we get through this. Yeah, I, I imagine the, the adaptations for you guys have had to been another level compared to, to to our IT departments frantically working out how we do lectures and things from home. But yeah, it, it's a, it's a it's a you know a, a different risk calculation for us for sure. But um, like I said, we have a lot of people working remote, and when we were traveling a lot, we had to deal with you know remote security as part of what we do. So we're kind of used to it. Obviously, the podcast here at King's is all about tackling big issues, big challenges. And I guess none are more amorphous, challenging and difficult than looking at how the Internet is impacting individual society, politics, the economy. Fortunately, you have a brand new book out which tackles some of these uh, and explores some of the themes that we're going to discuss today. I guess I wanted to start by discussing where we find ourselves today. So we're, we're in a pandemic. Most of the world is in lockdown. Certainly here in the UK, we're perhaps on another level of lockdown uh, than some countries. And it really feels like the internet has become completely integral to our lives, perhaps more visibly than it was than it was pre-lockdown. Do you think this has presented an opportunity to, to really go to what, what the book is about, which is about resetting our understanding of the internet and the web and how it involves, how it kind of intricately linked into our daily lives? Yeah, I do, actually. Um, in fact, uh, the title came to me prior to the pandemic, but it really um, suited the times that we now find ourselves in because everybody is kind of retreating and, and having the opportunity to take another, you know, to review what, what has been working in their lives and what, what hasn't and take stock and, and so forth. All of the things that resonate with, with the title. Um, it's also a bit of a double-edged sword, though. So, you know, as you mentioned, we, we in, in the course of, of moving to home isolation, work from home and so forth, many of us out of necessity had to embrace digital technologies. And we saw certainly saw the, the convenient side of it all where we're able to connect with friends and family, do work remotely and so forth. Um, but we're also embracing all of the pathologies and in fact, amplifying them in important ways. So if you remember at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot of concern about 
uh, when it comes to digital technology and COVID, privacy and contact tracing apps. This seemed to be almost 90% of the discussion. Meanwhile, um, as often happens uh, with, with humans, you know, we kind of sleepwalked into an embrace of, of all of the more fundamental components of, of the digital communications ecosystem and all, all of its faults, frankly. Um, so to give you one example, my son, who's an undergraduate at a university here in Canada, told me that he was required to download and uh, use a remote proctoring surveillance um, software uh, for one of his exams. And uh, I looked at this and I was astonished. This is basically surveillance technology that's used by schools to check for students teaching. But uh, basically what it does is it monitors everything that they're doing through their device, captures all their keywords, turns on the camera, captures ambient sound through the microphone and so forth, um, basically putting students under surveillance. So that, that's just one example of a kind of normalization that's happening and an acceleration, in fact, of a lot of the downsides of the technology um, that we're now forced to embrace and will probably be a, a kind of new normal as, as we come out of this. It won't easily go away, in other words. We talk so much about how sort of casually how the internet has, has now insects in every, every element of our life. And you talk about the normal, our normal lives and our digital lives. And I guess, you know, you're talking about, you know, you actually having the knowledge to understand what that app that your son downloads does and what it actually is in terms of a, a piece of surveillance. Just how conscious do you think people are of the ways in which uh, the internet is now and, and data is, is actually being monitored via apps, via education and health? That, that's a really interesting question. I, I think there are two ways of looking at this. One is that... Um, People are now beginning to acknowledge that there are some fundamental problems with social media and our applications. There's an undeniable gestalt in the air, I would say, that a feeling of unease, you know, at the same time that we're reliant on our applications and devices, we suspect something's not right about them, that it's encouraging bad habits that we could do without. And and so there's that going on. Um, But the, the, Underlying challenge here is that um, because of uh, the business model, surveillance capitalism, as Shoshana Zuboff calls it, um, it's very difficult for people to actually extract themselves from this environment precisely because of the the ways in which um, the technology is designed to capture and retain users, uh, mostly by uh, designing their products in ways that are hard to quit. Um, that uh, trigger certain human frailties and and cognitive traits or play on cognitive traits uh, in order to basically keep us engaged. And I think we're now, uh, studies are showing anyway, that that there are uh, qualities of, of, of addictive behavior that surround our social media use. So whenever you have something that's very compelling in a subconscious way like that, it's also difficult to step outside of it and say, oh, this is a problem. I need to do something about my habits until it becomes um, you know, a real problem, which for many people it increasingly is now. And, and we're seeing you know, the, the unintended consequences of a lot of this at a high level with with the kind of toxic public sphere that is um, one of the main features of social media these days. And that dependence on these products, I mean, we often think about it as individuals are are dependent on it. But equally, you know, if you look at the stock market during the lockdown, the companies that have just, 
kind of in terms of values have just gone through the roof have been mm. companies that are, are are so focused on data mining um on collecting our data is the economic model that we now live under also dependent on these companies and, and on this model of, of data extraction really without engagement with the user yeah i think that um it's really a juggernaut um and and by it i mean uh let, let's call it surveillance capitalism for shorthand um this business model that that started out confined to the internet and to a few social media platforms like google and facebook now ha- has uh extended to much of the of the economy i think it's arguably one of the principal pillars of the global economy today it being you know the personal data surveillance economy um, so everything now uh, is oriented around either capturing, gathering up, vacuuming, analyzing data, or monetizing it in some way. In, in other words, uh, packaging it up and selling it to third parties, wh- whether those are other companies, you know, insurance companies, banks, uh, et cetera, or to government agencies. And, and that's where things become really problematic. Um, because there's a categorical difference between the private sector vacuuming up and analyzing all of this data and the state doing it, which I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about. But it, it's, it has a kind of relentless logic to it. So if the business model is defined at its core by capturing and retaining users and gathering data from users, as I say, we, we are in essence the livestock for their data farms. Once you see it this way, it opens up some clarity in terms of this relentless logic of accumulation. So, you know, the way I think about it is one sensor is like a door that leads to another sensor. So, you know, you have an application that maybe gathers uh, some device ID information, and that's useful. You can take that and sell it to an advertising or location tracking company, and um, they might find it um, useful for whatever it is they're doing. But it creates an imperative to gather yet more data. Okay, we won't stop at the device ID. Let's see if we can gather some information on people's facial movements through the camera to extract data about their emotional state. Even though it may be based on pseudoscience, there's a lot of that going on right now. Just this morning, I was looking at uh, the proliferation of uh, technologies that are being used on children as part of remote learning, where companies are selling to schools and to teachers these human detection algorithms. So the idea here is they're, they're going to spotlight uh, children's faces and monitor their tics and you know uh, other, other involuntary uh, movements and features of their faces as if this can say something about their emotional state. Well, we know that the science around this is flawed, but that doesn't mean that the technology is not going to be promoted and widely adopted because, um, you know, this is part of that relentless logic to drive deeper and deeper into the most intimate aspects of our personal lives, um, which, you know, collectively has had the effect of creating this enormous data exhaust. So we've turned our, our digital lives inside out, created this data sphere that, that is connected to us, but actually is like a, you know, part of an environment that is also separate from us. And uh, this is where that enormous economic engine is located, the data analysis, location tracking and advertising analytics sector of the personal data surveillance economy. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned there are products that may not actually be useful at all for the user, but is so 
perhaps useful for those that are collecting the data. It kind of, I was reading that bit of the book. It reminded me, my brother's a chef and, you know, he always says the reason pizza always appears on the menu is because it costs 50p to make. Um, It's popular, but, but, you know, pizza is very cheap to make and you make a big profit on it. And, and it can feel like actually when you read the book, you're thinking of some of these products, they're actually being designed with the aim of data collection as opposed to creating products that, that are useful for society. Well, I, I would put it, there, as I say in the book, there are higher and lower level functions, right? So the, the lower level function is the apparent one. Maybe it's an app to order pizza, let's say. That could be useful and fun. It's still, in order to succeed, in fact, it has to serve some kind of social purpose or need or even apparent need. But then there's always a higher level function. The higher level function is the most important one, though. Uh, you know, the lower level one is like a Trojan horse. So, okay, let's come up with an app that sells pizza. But the reality is we want to get inside this consumer, uh, understand everything about their device, the network they're connecting to, uh, their location, maybe their other purchasing habits and preferences, who their friends are. Let's see if we can turn on the camera, you know, activate the audio, on and on and on it goes. You know, I to me, at, at least... Um, once I, I saw things this way, it became hard not to notice it. Like everywhere mm-hmm. I look now, I see those higher and lower level functions. You mentioned there about state surveillance and some of the ways in which states are using this technology to perhaps crack down on citizens or surveil them. In one of the chapters in which you entitled The Great Leap Forward, you talk about this and it opens with you receiving a WhatsApp message. Yeah, th- th- this is certainly... Um, uh, one of the defining episodes of the Citizen Lab over the last couple of years, and we've had many over the last 20. Um, but we, as part of our, our research stream, we have this one area where we have been investigating targeted digital espionage against civil society. So basically doing this kind of very careful, meticulous, investigative work, watching the watchers, acting as a kind of counterintelligence for civil society. This research relies on a lot of technical means, So we're doing like network scanning, reverse engineering, malware analysis, and so on to try to better understand the landscape, you know, what governments are doing in cyberspace, let's call it, and who are the companies that are servicing them, that are providing them with tools and services. One niche within that marketplace is commercial spyware. This is technology that's sold to government clients to enable them to hack into devices, It's marketed under the rubric of assisting governments in their investigations into terrorism or criminal matters. But what we have found, perhaps not surprisingly, uh, because there are no controls, there's very little regulation around how this technology is sold or deployed, and many governments are democratically challenged or downright authoritarian, they abuse this technology. They use it to hack into the phones of dissidents, journalists, human rights activists, and others to the point where I feel it's like a plague. Back in 2018, we were monitoring the infrastructure of one of these companies, an Israel-based company called NSO Group. They supply this type of spyware to dozens of governments around the world. And we had been tracking them for a number of years to the point where we could see with a high level of confidence, who the government operators are and the locations within which the devices that they had hacked were located. And we could see that there was a a hack device in Canada. Um, We didn't know anything about the person though. 
All we could see was this device was was hacked with this Pegasus spyware by Saudi Arabia. So being Canadian, located in Canada, we thought, okay, well, we should try to find out who this is and warn them. And we went out and actually uh, identified what was really a needle in the haystack. Uh, we, we found this person, Omar Abdulaziz. He's a Saudi dissident. He fled to Canada, got permanent residency in 2014. He runs a very prominent YouTube channel, followed by millions of people, very critical of Mohammed bin Salman. So precisely the type of guy that would be targeted in this manner. Uh, so we wrote up this report and published it on October 1st, 2018. What we didn't know, uh, and I, I, I certainly didn't know about myself until that next day when he sent me the WhatsApp message, is that he and Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post journalist who was executed in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, they were close confidants. They had been communicating over what they thought were encrypted uh, messaging applications, plans to mobilize against the Saudi regime. And they didn't know until uh, we got uh, in touch with Omar that Omar's device was under total surveillance. So everything they were planning and communicating was being watched from afar by Saudi security agencies. And it's quite likely that uh, the information the Saudis gathered in the course of that surveillance that we unearthed played a role in the decision to execute Jamal Khashoggi because their plans, which were private, so they thought, uh, were very provocative. They were, they were talking, you know, they were casting aspersions against Mohammed bin Salman and so on. And, and this one, one case, you know, I have the chapter that you reference is called Great Leap Forward for the Abuse of Power. It illustrates how, you know, you have this environment. It wasn't created this way by design, but one of its central properties is that it's highly invasive and yet insecure, and poorly regulated. And so all of that together creates this enormous, almost irresistible opportunity for malicious actors to engage in exploitation. And as a result, we're seeing uh, not only a, a huge increase in this type of targeted espionage and a growing marketplace of companies like NSO Group, um, but it really turns on its head the expectations a lot of people had 10 years ago was the Arab Spring. Everyone marveled at the way that people were using Twitter and Facebook to mobilize. But what's happened over the last 10 years is really the antithesis of all of that. It turns out it's very convenient for an autocrat, for a, a, a ruthless dictator to have their opponents carry with them devices at all times that they can, with a few million dollars, go out and purchase services that enable them to get inside those devices and see everything that's going on without the target knowing. That is really dangerous stuff. And I think it helps explain the rise in authoritarianism we've seen. It's one explanation for why we've seen it. To me, it represents one of the greatest threats to global civil society today. I mean, you mentioned there the Arab Spring, and it is just a 10-year period, which it actually, you actually sort of need to remind yourself that, both the, yeah. the, the development in devices, but also in terms of the politics, the geopolitics that have been fitted in, in those 10 years. How wrong-headed was it when we were kind of talking about this as the Facebook revolution or, you know, that these, these apps were actually the drivers of these, uh, of these movements? I mean, you mentioned in the, in the book that really these regimes decided, you know, how do we stop this? And kind of the answer was, well, use the tools that were used against us. And was it kind of inevitable that, that actually 
these were always going to be advantageous to regimes that had the finances and the actual capacity to mobilize them more than they were actually going to be useful for the activists who are often working individually or within kind of very weakly funded networks? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't think it was necessarily wrong. People weren't drawing the wrong inference. Uh, it is true that people can mobilize very effectively using these technologies. They are empowering and they distribute power in, a, in important ways. If you look at what's going on in Myanmar right now, even in spite of internet shutdowns, people can still mobilize and outflank the government, get information in and out of the country. It's very difficult to control. And I think what we saw starting with the Arab Spring was a kind of experimentation. So up until that point, most authoritarian-minded leaders, policymakers, thought about controlling the internet through very crude firewalls. Let's put in place internet censorship, mimic what China is doing with their great firewall. And of course, this was easy to outflank. Uh, circumvention technology sprouted up. At Citizen Lab, we invented one called Siphon that's now separate from the Citizen Lab, used by millions of people. But what I think a lot of people didn't recognize was that governments, maybe not those ones, but, but governments, especially in the West, had for decades maneuvered through the information technology space under a cloud of secrecy and classification and have developed very sophisticated surveillance methods and practices. And it was inevitable that this market would spill out to the global South. And, you know, the companies that service the GCHQs, the NSAs of the world, they would look to those markets as new opportunities for sales and revenue. And so they, seeing the Arab Spring and the urgency that this created around those, uh, those uh, leaders, you know, a market sprouted up. And suddenly these, you know, uh, authoritarian leaders had tools and products and services that they never before imagined and much more effective than putting in place crude firewalls to prevent people from accessing information. Keep the internet open. In fact, the more open, the better, because we can see everything that you're doing. Watch everyone you're communicating with. Anticipate your plans neutralize it before it happens, even with lethal means, as we saw in the case of uh, Hashoji. And I mean, we'll come on to discuss some of the, the ways in which you suggest that we could we could tackle some of these issues. But it should be noted that these these regimes and these technologies aren't being developed unilaterally. They're not being developed separately to a wider kind of tech sector. I mean, you mentioned there some of the same products being used in the West. And, it, and it's fair to say some of the companies that are actually providing or interlocking with some of these these services are actually based in western democracies. Yeah, there and and not all of them start out as companies whose explicit focus is law enforcement or intelligence even. So uh, there's a lot of dual use applications right now. For example, location tracking. You know, that that is very useful for advertising purposes and a lot of the applications built within their code base uh, capabilities to extract as much location information as they can from a person's device and then sell that to advertisers. Well, it turns out that's very useful data for law enforcement, for intelligence agencies. And as a consequence, many of these location tracking companies are now looking to the government uh, market as a viable client base. So it's it, there's a lot of dual use applications. And it's true, a lot of this originated in the West, so to speak, 
Um, but we're just at the beginning of a curve, uphill curve. A lot of the surveillance companies in the future uh, will come from places like China, from India. We're already seeing it uh, through the Belt and Road Initiative, for example. China is exporting a lot of facial recognition technology, technology sold under the rubric of smart city development, uh, which is basically, you know, CCTV cameras, mass surveillance technologies, and so on. Um, so it's a, it's a huge marketplace. And the point of that chapter was to point out, look, we've had this acceleration within just 10 years of enormous, awesome capabilities for government control. But the safeguards to prevent the abuse of power are stuck in the Victorian era. Uh, we haven't caught up. And that gap creates the prospect for extraordinary abuse of state power. So one of the urgent things we need to do is remedy that in various ways, come up with safeguards that are up to date to the new world that we live in. I mean, you mentioned the, the Great Firewall, as it's called, and how China is using the internet or regulating the internet to suit uh, the one-party system. First of all, can you tell us a little bit about the Great Firewall? I appreciate that's quite a big question. There's a lot to it. <laughs> uh, well, in fact, I've got a diagram of it right in front of me. that I, was, I just happened to be looking at it for something else. Um, yeah, so China's an interesting case. Again, here we have a country whose experience belies the early expectations. It was almost conventional wisdom. When I started out in this field in the early 1990s, first internet connections were happening in China, were getting set up, and virtually everyone was saying, oh, you know, China, the one-party communist regime will not be able to uh, withstand this hypermedia environment. Myself included, I, I thought there's no way that this, this uh, regime will be able to persist in the information age. It's too cumbersome, too heavy-handed, too centralized. But what they've done is actually extraordinary. Uh, they've been able to combine authoritarian control and mass surveillance with technological innovation. So if you look at, you know, you asked about the Great Firewall, basically these are choke points set up at the backbone and the gateways of the internet. So to capture at a very high level traffic flowing in and out of the Chinese internet. There are basically three main gateways through which uh, traffic passes in and out of China. Uh, so there are bottlenecks, right? And uh, that this case actually illustrates why it's important to think about the physical infrastructure of cyberspace, something that's often overlooked. But if you look at a map of undersea cables, you'll see that they come into China at three points. And basically that's where the firewall exists. And the firewall is used to inspect requests for data coming in and out of China and block access to certain IP addresses or poison requests for DNS and so forth. It's a very high-level catchment, but it's also easy to evade for that reason. It's like a, a big fence, right? You can climb over the fence, you can dig underneath it or whatever. So what they've done is combine that high-level information control with intermediary responsibility. And by that, I mean, uh, they've passed a very broad cybersecurity law that requires any private company in China to police their users. And so you see, and we've, we've shown this in, in Citizen Lab's research, that the application environment is highly distributed. To give you one example, live streaming applications are very popular in China. Uh, this is where people film themselves doing things for revenue, like playing games or cooking a meal or whatever. 
But those have to be censored because people will talk over the chat function about things that are considered taboo. But the responsibility is left to the application developer to handle it. And as a consequence, when we reverse engineered over 2,000 of these applications, we saw that the same content wasn't censored in each of those applications, highly distributed and different. So if you're using one application, you might not be able to talk about, I don't know, something to do with Tiananmen Square, but on another application, you might be able to. And this actually turns out to be very effective because it's more flexible. It's more like a series of, of trawling nets. You know, you, you some stuff gets through, but eventually it'll be catched somewhere. And it also creates a very effective climate of self-censorship because people know that they're being watched, but the rules are not transparent. So they're a little afraid of surveillance. And lastly, it's a great revenue generator. So it leaves the innovation to the application developers. You come up with a solution. We just want you to make sure that people don't use your platform to organize. So it's up to you as to how you control it. And of course, they turn over data to uh, state authorities upon request. There is nothing like you know judicial safeguards in China warranting processes that protect civil liberties. Uh, that's entirely absent. So you, you have really a kind of Orwellian picture. I don't want to overstate it, you know, but still, this is one image of where we might head if we continue down this pathway. And I think that's a very bad thing, personally. So we need to be cognizant of what's happening there. It's not being contained to China either. It's spilling out through exports, through China's very ambitious international governance strategies, and it could very well affect how you and I communicate. Right now, we're using Zoom, right? Uh, which is, uh, as we showed in our research, until they corrected it, the encryption keys that we, uh, when we reverse engineered Zoom, some of the encryption keys used to encrypt our video sessions were coming from servers in mainland China. That's not a very good thing. We discovered that, by the way, at a time when Boris Johnson was holding cabinet meetings over Zoom. Uh, so the risks were quite enormous then. Yeah, so access to all all Boris's pictures, contacts, and messages. Um, yes, <laughs> it's a God forbid. Yeah, startling fact. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned there the, the, the sort of that sort of expectation. It kind of mirrors the expectation that with Levi's jeans and and consumerism, China would change its political model, and yes. and it still feels that the West is still grappling with that not to be the case. We mm-hmm. we've stopped hearing the op-eds saying that you know. The, the arrival of Marx and Spencer's will, will mark the arrival of democracy. But we still haven't really grappled with what that means in terms of policy towards China. And in a similar, in a similar way, it feels as if perhaps that's the case with the internet in that we think, as you say, many people thought that the arrival of the internet would, would, would mark at least the, the possibility of a growing civil society and kind of connect up users. But, but that might not have actually happened um, and has actually been the opposite. Just to build on that, and to, you mentioned other countries, you know, we hear over the last few years that, you know, the retreat of democracy or the rise of populism, that countries, particularly in emerging markets, are maybe not looking to the West for their model. When we're talking about the internet and talking about data hauling, are they actually looking at China as a successful model in terms of what can be achieved with surveillance and monitoring of citizens? And should we see that as a direct threat? So it's not just about that other countries are viewing the Chinese economic model as one that's what's one that's actually being successful for them. But it's also actually about their internet model and, and some of these, some of these ways that you've explained. 
I think so. Although I, I think in reality, if you and I were to go travel and do field research and and actually be present in a lot of the rooms where decisions are made in some of these, let's say, developing world countries that are, you know, swing states or kind of deciding which way to go, I doubt that they'd be thinking at a high level about models, like they, oh, we should go with the China model. Instead, what happens is a bit more subtle. It, it has to do with contracting, pricing, satisfying immediate needs. And so you are a, uh, let's put yourself in the position of, um, you know, a leader who who's in power, but precariously you face uh, insurgencies, maybe risk of civil war. There's a determined political opposition. Civil society is criticizing you for human rights. And you're, you're, you're wanting to stay in power because you're a kleptocrat. You've been involved in corruption and money-making schemes. And you know, if, if it's exposed, uh, your, your career will be over and you might uh, end up in prison. And so you want to avoid that. So you're looking at a very short-term horizon. And the menu available to you includes... Chinese companies that are willing to sell you at a very uh, low discounted rate because they're backed with state loans, a whole panoply of urban surveillance policing technologies, all the way up from, you know, a one-stop shop solution. So Huawei will come in, they'll put in place routers at the backbone that you can use to extract and monitor data that's of interest to you. They'll uh, combine that with data that's fused from CCTV cameras that they'll install at major intersections. They'll embed the CCTV cameras with AI-empowered facial recognition systems, and they'll do this at a very low price. So that that's kind of the, the calculation that's being made, in my view. It's not so much, hey, we want to go down this pathway. It looks successful. I want to be just like China. It's more like, no, I'm a crook and I want to stay in power. What's going to keep me in power? And waiting outside the office are a bunch of business people from China looking to sell you a solution for that. Yeah, affordable and cheaper solutions often than perhaps yeah. the US or, or Europe are offering. Exactly. So one of the great things about the book is, first of all, it explains things in, in language that those of us working outside of the field can understand. Um, oh, and that, thank that's, you. That's good to that's, hear. That's really helpful. And um, I really highly recommend anyone to go read the book. But it also offers us solutions, which is always good, particularly on this podcast when we're, we're looking for solutions for big challenges. I don't want to go through them all because there's, there's, there's lots in the book. And, and I, as I say, I urge people to go read it. But what, what would you say that the key takeaways to kind of resetting the internet are for you? Well, one, one is a, a kind of high level less a recommendation than a philosophy. You know, one of the frustrations for me working in this field was to see a lot of people talking about the same problems. And then when they would get to the recommendations, they would feel kind of incomplete or fragments of a missing whole. And so, or reactionary, we see a lot of decisions taken in reaction to things. So for example, after January 6th in the United States, the platforms removed Trump banned him entirely in reaction to something. So it's it's always like this ad hoc decision-making going on. So what I wanted to do was provide a kind of philosophical framework for how we might think about this. And I draw from not something new, but from something quite ancient, uh, liberal Republican thinking. And at the heart of at least, you know, the family of liberal theorizing that I drew from in the book is this notion of restraint. 
And I wanted to remind people of how important this principle is and how it applies to not just uh, governments, but also the private sector and to ourselves as civil society. So at the core of, of liberal Republican thinking is the idea that human beings are flawed in important ways. They tend to be selfish and greedy. They tend to abuse power, especially when they're in large organizations where power can accumulate. And so various thinkers going back centuries have thought about mechanisms to check and restrain the abuse of power. That's really what I'm drawing from in the book, because I feel like we've gone through this enormous acceleration, as I talked about before, in capabilities around data surveillance, the power that is conferred on companies and governments by all of this data exhaust out there, and yet we haven't built appropriate safeguards. So restraint is really at the key of what I'm proposing from a philosophical point of view. Putting that aside for a minute, I think the biggest recommendation I would make is a simple one. I I think we need to exercise principled democratic governance over social media platforms. For too long, they've benefited by a kind of hands-off approach. This idea that the, the platforms can govern themselves We don't want to have a heavy hand. We don't want to get the state involved. For the most part, that's been good because we've seen a lot of really cool innovation. But the time has come now where we need to exercise public policy over the platforms. But the trick here is not to go too far. We don't want governments dictating to tech platforms what their content moderation rules should be or nudge them to the point where they're doing political censorship, which is what we see in a number of places around the world. So instead, there needs to be a kind of nice balance here. And one of the the areas that I would really advocate strongly for is opening up the black box of the tech platforms. So uh, right now, these tech platforms have proprietary algorithms that they use to shape our communication spaces to propel forward certain types of information, put it in front of us while putting the brake on or dampening other types of information. And they're private companies. And yet we treat them as our public spaces. So if that's the structure uh, that we live in, it seems not only imperative, but also common sense that we should have some public interest inspection mechanism, some authority that's constituted by government that has the uh, authority to get inside these companies and inspect their algorithms. So the way to think about this is, you know, recall I described how we're seen by the platforms as livestock for their data farms. If you carry that analogy further, imagine if there were food production facilities or meat packing plants where inspectors health inspectors were not allowed to come inside and make sure, verify that the procedures were being done in ways that weren't going to harm consumers. Well, that's precisely what we have right now in our information space. We have these enormous tech platforms that operate as black boxes. They know everything about you. They know everything about me, but we know very little about them. That to me is the most basic uh, change we need to make. If we did that, It wouldn't solve everything that we're talking about, but it would be an enormous step forward in the public interest and help remedy some of the problems that we're uh, seeing in a lot of different areas.
And I mean, one of the fantastic things about the book is that it is accessible and actually open to those of us who don't work in the field. It demystifies some of these things. And and how much do you think that that is one of the issues? Because I'm thinking back to those clips of congressmen or uh, senators speaking to senior executives, I don't know if it's Facebook or Twitter, and yeah. just kind of being bamboozled by these terms and the and different ways the internet works. But actually, when you actually look at those clips, you think, well... In some ways, this is all kind of smoke and mirrors. Actually, yeah. some of this stuff can be explained and it should be explained. Do you think there's got to be a kind of wider conversation and kind of education around lifting the lid, as you say, for the public, but also for policymakers? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're speaking my language, the whole impetus behind my entire career, in fact, and, and the work of the Citizen Lab has been oriented towards lifting the lid on all of this to expose what's going on beneath the surface. Uh, the reality is that, you know, our experiences feel kind of like a mirage, like it's magic. Look at what we're doing right now. It, it just seems uh, remarkable that we can communicate with each other face to face and we're thousands of miles separate from each other. But underlying it all is this vast physical infrastructure, most of which is owned and operated by private companies that are scrutinizing every bit that travels through those networks and monetizing it. So there there are important and powerful intermediaries of this conversation and a vast physical infrastructure that connects us. It is through that infrastructure that power is exercised by both private companies and governments. So we need, we desperately need to pull back the curtain on all of this and expose what's going on in the public interest. The other thing I'll say is, you know, in terms of short-term immediate solutions, we desperately need to have social media alternatives that aren't based on surveillance capitalism, that aren't based on this enormous manipulation machine where content is propelled forward, designed to attract us, that's sensational, extreme, emotional, that makes us indignant. That comes from the engines the algorithmic engines of the platforms. They're designed that way. We need models where that's not the primary incentive, where they're not structured in ways to play upon our emotions. There's no reason why that can't be built using public funds, something uh, analogous to public parks, which you know officials and, and thinkers have recognized for centuries are essential to the health of citizens and to society. And so we need something like that now. Um, I can see glimpses of it emerging at local levels, um, but there's no reason why we can't have national, even international versions of that instead of what we see now. Yeah, perhaps we were Dorothy for the last 10 years in Oz and we've we've finally reached the Emerald Emerald City. We're going to pull back that curtain. Um, It's perhaps time. Well, it just leaves, leaves me to say to listeners, please go check out and read Professor Ron Debert's new book, Reset, Reclaiming the Internet for Civil Society. And I just want to say a big thank you to Professor Ron Debert. Thank you, James. It's been a pleasure speaking with you and uh, always, always fond of visiting King's College. I wish we could have done this in person. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll get a beer soon, hopefully. Fingers crossed. Yeah, Roll out great. the vaccine. Good stuff. You've been listening to The World We Got This podcast from Global Affairs at King's College London. This podcast was produced by James Bagley and Lucy Wilman, with editing from Rachel Waugh.